Welcome to Faith in Politics. As Christians, we believe our faith should have an effect on every area of our lives, and this includes our politics. But how does this look when it's lived out in public life? How does it affect how we think about particular issues? And how do we put our faith into action? Here at Faith in Politics, we want to explore these questions through interviews with public figures and through biblical monthly musings on particular issues. Hello and welcome to episode two of season three of Faith in Politics with Rosella Payne and Cameron Hume. I don't know if you've heard, but there is a general election going on at the moment. And so we've got a bumper edition of the podcast for you today, a general election special. Um, We're hoping to cover some topics that you might not hear about elsewhere. We realise you've probably had it up to here with the general election already. So we're hoping to give you something a little bit different from what you hear elsewhere. Yeah, given that Cameron and I have just lost our jobs, um, that is, we both usually spend a few days a week in Parliament, but since that's been dissolved, it's not happening. We've had plenty of time to dig deep into some of the issues that usually people wouldn't consider during the election and consider the voices that often might get overlooked. Yes, and as a result, we have not one, not two, not three, but four interviews for you today. Who are we interviewing, Rosa? Yes, we're going to start with Paul Parker, who is... Um, heads up the Quaker organisation and he is chatting to us about the Lobbying Act and the impact that has on small charities. That's followed by Irene McKinnon who's going to tell us about a new way to do hustings and how to hear the voices of those again overlooked in that. And we also have Lucy Zavinska who is talking to us about the Poverty Truth Commission and how we can close the gap between people and policies. And is there someone we're missing there Cameron? There is. So we're also interviewing Deacon Tracy Hume, who's a Methodist minister in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. And we're talking to her about a campaign she's been running to help bless candidates during this election period. She also just happens to be my mum. Okay, so let's jump into our first interview of today. This one was with Paul Parker from the Quakers, and we talked to him about something called the Lobbying Act. Now, this was a somewhat controversial piece of legislation that was brought in a few years ago which is quite important during election periods in the way that it affects small charities and therefore churches and Paul's someone who's done quite a bit of thinking about this so we talked to him about his thoughts. Hi Paul, thank you very much for joining us today on Faith in Politics. We're going to chat to you a bit about the Lobbying Act and the impact that has on the work of charities and churches during the general election. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what the Lobbying Act is and particularly the intention behind it. So the Lobbying Act is a piece of legislation that was enacted um, about five years ago now and the intention of it was to try to improve transparency at election times and to limit the improper influence on elections. And on the face of it, that's a very legitimate worry. Um, We've seen big changes in how elections can be influenced or swung by um, people other than politicians campaigning. And so I was initially quite supportive of an idea that you might try to regulate that differently. Um, Unfortunately, what it's done also seems to reflect a fear that charities might be being used as a political vehicle to to influence elections. 
And so there are various implications of the Lobbying Act, which are a bit problematic, really, for, for organisations like mine and for churches, which are charities. Charities already are not allowed to do party political campaigning, but they are allowed to campaign for a policy change where they feel that the people they're working with, or the people they're working for, um, really need that policy change to happen. So if you're a, a homelessness charity and you can see that certain policies are damaging your beneficiaries, then it's absolutely right that you should be able to point to those policies and say that policy needs to change. It's not it's not helping the people we're we're working with. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to say this party or that party or the other party has got it right and you should vote for them. But it does mean you should be saying, here are some policy issues that, that, that are worth campaigning on. See if you can influence the way political parties behave after they've been elected. So it's, it's quite tricky sometimes to draw a line between party political campaigning and that kind of campaigning for, for social justice and sustainability or whatever the issue is that, that you're working on. And so the lobbying, the intention of the lobbying act was to try and get in there and clarify that. I'm not convinced that's worked as a tactic. Okay, so yeah, you've said this particularly impacts the small charities and churches. So I was wondering if you could explain more about how how the work of these charities and churches has been impacted by the lobbying act. So I think the main way, actually, is that it's made people frightened of campaigning. And absolutely the last thing we should do is stop talking about justice and peace as churches. You know, we are charities, but mainly we're churches and we're motivated by faith to say certain things and to believe certain things. And it's really important that we should carry on doing that. And I think churches are not party political in that sense anyway. And so the risk of falling foul of those rules about party political campaigning are relatively low because if you're talking about some big issue about about peace or justice then a whole range of parties are going to have a take on that you know no, nobody generally campaigns against those kinds of things it's more about how they go about changing the world in ways that make them more likely and so I think my biggest fear, actually, is that charities and churches lose their nerve and think they shouldn't campaign at all, when actually what they need to do is be saying, well, this is how these questions need to be asked, these questions need to be raised in ways which are constructive and are about building a a new political consensus about better ways of doing things. The difficulty with the Lobbying Act is that it regulates certain kinds of activity, So it has a a spending threshold where if you spend more than a certain amount, then you need to register as a campaigning organisation. That, in principle, is about transparency so that you know who is campaigning in election periods. It also has a regulated period, which lasts a year before a general election. Um, And other elections are also regulated, but general elections are what we're talking about today, I think. Now, in the case of the current general election, that means the regulated period started in December 2018, when none of us knew that election was going to be called. We might have had an inkling, but we didn't know it was going to happen and we didn't know the date of it. So we couldn't begin to consider whether our activities crossed that threshold or not, because we didn't know we were in the regulated year. 
So that's problematic. And then there is an upper spending limit, which you're absolutely not allowed to cross. And in both of those areas, whether it's the actual spend on you know, political adverts or something like that, um, or the pre preparatory stuff that your staff might be doing, you've got to consider two things um, to be relevant. One is whether you are trying to influence the general public or just your own members because the general public is caught by this regulation, but if you're just talking to your own community, your own membership, then you can, you can do what you like, basically. Um, and the other is whether your purpose is to influence people to vote for a particular candidate. So you have to ask yourselves those tests, and then you have to look at what you're spending and how much of it is to meet those tests, and then you have to declare that expense to the Electoral Commission. And there's loads of guidance, by the way, on the Electoral Commission website about all of this. Um, and it's just been updated and it's much better than it was. So if you looked at it a year or two ago, do look again. It's much clearer and there are really helpful examples and case studies of what's covered and what isn't covered. And as I say, I think we could worry about it a whole lot. But actually, for the vast majority of what we're doing, it doesn't affect us. The sort of campaigning around election time that we're doing is not likely to meet those tests to such an extent that we'd cross those spending thresholds. But it's worth looking at it, being sensitive to it. The other thing worth saying is that if you're doing something which is genuinely cross-party, so one of the things churches very commonly get involved with is organising hustings. I'm involved in planning one at the moment with my own local Churches Together group. Then that's not covered by the Lobbying Act. So hustings, because it's about helping everybody to make their own decision about who to vote for, things like that are fine. So we absolutely shouldn't be deterred from organising events where members of the public get to engage with potential candidates for Parliament. It's really, really important that we do that. And when I talk to people who are standing for Parliament, one of the things they often say about churches is that it, one of the things churches do is organise public meetings and nobody else really does that with that kind of broad agenda that says, please come in, ask your people whatever questions you think are important, make your own decision about how to vote. So we absolutely shouldn't stop doing that sort of activity either. That's great. So you mentioned some of the challenges that um, might be faced during this period. Um, how can charities and churches respond to this? So firstly, the last thing we should do is stop campaigning. We've got such a lot to say as faith communities about what a just society looks like about what a sustainable world looks like about what communities look like in which our values as people of faith can flourish we absolutely need to be part of the conversation if we're not i think we are missing out on some of the things that are right at the heart of our tradition actually if you look at the way jesus behaved he wasn't a man who held back from speaking truth to power and we should be doing that so we absolutely should respond to the Lobbying Act by carrying on doing that. I also think we have to ask ourselves some questions about whether the Lobbying Act is doing what it was meant to do. If you think about who you might worry about influencing elections at the moment, it's probably not churches, it's probably not charities, it might be online things, it might be... Um, people spending lots of money on advertising campaigns that's not being transparently declared. So it might be that actually we should be saying, why are you coming after us? 
with this regulation rather than actually going to the places where the problem is. And I think you would struggle to find somebody who says the Lobbying Act has been a successful attempt to make elections in this country more transparent. So we might want to ask some questions about that and what political parties are planning to do about that in their manifestos as part of our non-party political engagement with parliamentarians and potential parliamentarians over the next few weeks. Do they really want to hear from charities and churches about the things that we would see making the most difference in British society? You know, we are, we are often the people working in difficult places on difficult issues. So we should be able to say what we think about asylum policy. We should be able to say what we think about housing policy, about homelessness, about how people are looked after in old age, about how people are fed. Churches have been working in all these spheres for, in some cases, hundreds of years. We've got a lot of experience. It's really important that people with experience are listened to. And if we let something like the Lobbying Act or our fear of a kind of bogeyman lobbying act, which isn't really what it is anyway, stop us from speaking out, then we're missing something. But I think we also have to emphasise the importance of our voice being there and the importance of the faith voice in the public square. That's absolutely what I think churches should be doing and we need to carry on doing that. That's great. Thank you so much for that. That's been really helpful to us and hopefully to our listeners. For those of you listening at home who might be interested in hearing more about where you can get more information on this, we'll put some links in the bio of our podcast. A really helpful interview from Paul there, I thought. Um, It seems that the Lobbying Act is a potentially worrying piece of legislation in some ways, if charities do feel that they are restricted, but also encouraging to hear that when the guidance is clear and charities know and churches know what they can and can't do, they can still campaign effectively. One of the things that Paul mentioned that churches should definitely still be doing during the election season is hustings. And Rosella, you talked to someone about that, didn't you? Yes, the next interview is with Irene McKinnon, who um, gives us an insight into a different way to do hustings. And I won't say too much because Irene has lots to say on this and it's really exciting to hear about this opportunity. Hi Irene, thank you for joining us here at Faith in Politics. We're excited to hear what you have to say about people's politics hustings. I was wondering if you could start by explaining to me what they are. Um, sure, yes. Yeah. So we're, we kind of call it a people's politics uh, hosting meeting. And it's really because the focus of the whole meeting is about people and the actual um, issues that affect people. So the emphasis really is on the individual stories of people that are affected by a variety of issues. So if you were going to plan a, a people's politics hustings, you would think about the issues that you want to focus on. So in the past, when we've planned them, we've maybe focused on three different issues. And then we found people that are particularly affected by these issues. So, for example, if it was something to do with welfare reform, we might find somebody that was particularly affected by, say, universal credit. We'd ask them to be part of the hustings um, and we'd ask them to share their stories. Um, And then we have so we'd have maybe three people talking about three different issues from their own perspective um, so that the focus is really on their story and, and their words. And then these particular issues are put to the politicians 
um, or the local candidates that are invited along to the meeting. Okay, so why is it that we hold hustings in this way? It's obviously a bit different to the usual approach. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's one of the points that it is so different to the normal approach. And I think people are quite used to seeing politicians um, arguing or sparring with each other over particular things. Um, and sometimes then the focus is really more about the party or about politics or really how, how a particular politician comes across. Whereas the focus um, for this kind of hustings is really very much about the, the particular issue. And the reason it's important is because it's connected to a person or people that are in this situation. So it's very important to think about, you know, our values, why we think they're important. And also just to give people that don't normally have a voice, a voice. Um, so we're very used to hearing politicians and we're very used to hearing um their messages and their campaign adverts and all this kind of thing whereas when we're listening to real people talking about their real lives and and things that they've experienced it's really important just to to think about that when we think about voting hopefully some of our listeners at home will be interested in putting on an event like this how would they go about doing that um, well, we do have some uh, resources that are available, so you can have a look at the um, JPIT website or on the SCPO in Scotland website, and uh, there is a bit of a kind of breakdown of how to hold it, but to kind of, um, in a really simple way, I think it's important just to think about the issues you want to focus on, maybe pick three issues, then find three people that would be able to speak to these issues from their own personal experience, and then invite candidates from the local area from the different parties that are standing um, to an event, be very clear with them how the the event will take place and, and the kind of format. Um, and then also make sure that the people that are sharing their stories are comfortable, obviously, to share their stories and if they need a bit of help to support them in that way. Um, if, you ha- if you're managing to get all these people in place and you manage to do that before um, the general election, then that would be great. And then obviously invite the public. Um, but it, it can be that simple. It does take a bit of research. Obviously, you need to find people that are willing to speak and willing to talk about their own stories. But I think it's a really effective way of thinking about the issues in a more real life way. So have you yourself been along to one of these events? I was wondering what you got out of that experience and how that went. Um, yes, we did. We had um, one of the first times we actually used this model was in um, 2016. And we focused on or the, the event focused on um, the education on in-work poverty and community empowerment and three uh, sets of young people talked about these different um, subjects. It was very well chaired and also there were representatives from each of the political parties in Scotland were there as well. They actually said at the end of the event that they really found it very refreshing. They found it a bit kind of different obviously at first it's not quite what they were used to but they actually found it quite refreshing being able to answer questions that came directly from people that had a lived experience of that particular subject. Um, As somebody that was at the event, I I did find it really um, exciting. I think it's just sometimes we can all get a bit kind of fatigued with politics and hearing the same kind of lines and the same kind of expressions. So I found it really um, exciting just to hear people feeling confident and feeling like they had uh, they had their voice and they had a voice that was going to be heard and that these people who wanted to be in positions of power had to sit down and listen to them for that few minutes that they had to speak. Um, and I think it was just, it was just, it brought politics home as well. It kind of made you think about 
all the different issues that people experience on a day-to-day basis um, and made it far more real. So I think as somebody in the audience, it was um, a refreshing way to look at a debate and also a really important way to really remember what's important and what you truly value. How do you go about selecting representatives for the people's politics hustings? What kind of people have you asked previously? Um, well, obviously, it's somebody that's really experienced the issue that you're trying to focus on. So in a in a different event that we organised, we looked at the um, subject of Brexit. So we, we managed to find a minister that um, is, a, is German, but has stayed in the UK for a number of years. And she was particularly concerned about um, Brexit and how it was going to affect her work and her life and the way it affected her mood as well and the way that she felt um, welcomed by the country that she lived in. I think that was um, somebody that we came across um, through churches, that, through our connections in churches, um, and she was very willing to speak because that's something that was very real to her. Um, in another example, we had we were looking at welfare reform and universal credit. Um, we managed to find somebody that works um, in Glasgow. She's part of a self-reliant group that works as part of a charity that is also closely connected to various churches in Glasgow. Um, we were able to contact them and ask if she would be willing to speak um, and she was and she was somebody that had a lot of health issues and was not able to work full time and it really depended on the day how many hours she was able to work so it was very important to her that she was still able to do a little bit of work but also that she would still be able to get the benefits that she was entitled to so I think it does take a little bit of research or, or kind of looking at the people that you know and the people that are affected but I think when you're maybe part of a church or part of a, a community, um, these people are there. It's just a case of um, doing a little bit of research and you'll find them. Some of our listeners might have already organised or signed up to attend a hustings that's more conventional. How would you recommend they bring in some of these ideas to that conventional hustings? Um, well, I think, I suppose the focus really is on the individual story and the individual experience. So either um, speak about your own experience if, you, if, if that person felt able to as part of maybe a question that they put to one of the politicians um, or they could uh, maybe a, a few people could come along and speak about their own individual experiences relating to a specific issue. I think really um, it's important that politicians or candidates that want to be politicians realise um, that the people that they want to represent have these stories and have these issues and that part of their job as their elected representative is going to be how they're going to address these issues. So if you can think of a way of how to present your story um, how and how to present your real life experience in a, in a traditional hustings, which will probably be a, a, a question to the panel or the series of candidates, then I would really encourage people to do that. Thank you very much, Irene, for joining us here at Faith in Politics. I'm definitely hoping to get along to a people's politics hosting this election season, and I hope that some of you guys might be ho- planning to do that as well. That if you are interested in maybe hosting a people's hustings, then there's resources available on the JPIT website to do that. Um, do let us know if you do, because... We want to see how that goes. Central to the people's politics hustings is hearing voices who are normally not heard during the election period. And that's the theme that follows into the next interview with Lucy Slavinska, who's talking to us about closing the gap between policymakers and those who are on the receiving end of those policies.
Lucy, thank you for joining us. One of the things we at the Joint Public Issues team are wanting to encourage is the closing of the gap between policymakers and those who are affected by policies. And a general election seems a particularly important time for candidates to be listening to ordinary people. Could you tell us a little bit about where you see this gap and how you are working to help close it? Hello, Cameron. Thanks for having me. Great question. Um, so I work in Gateshead and I wish that this question were harder to answer, like how we see the gap between um, policymakers and the people who are affected by them. But actually, honestly, Cameron, it is everywhere you look, like the people that I meet and um, people who have experience of poverty, whether that be chronic or completely unexpected and temporary, um, are just affected by systems that are designed so clumsily by people who one can only presume <laughs> haven't had conversations with the people who are using them because they just don't make any sense for people's lived lives, for like the human, the humans that use them. So the obvious example, which um, I really love the joint public issues teams work on is universal credit. The One of the churches that I work with has a food bank that operates it from a Friday. Um, and gosh, it feels like 99% of people who come in to the food bank um, come because A, universal credit is working as it is supposed to and therefore there's a wait before they get um, their payments or it um, is less money and it's it's just not enough to live on or universal credit is not working and there's so much bureaucracy there, you know, they are totally suffering at the hands of that. So that's just like a gaping gap between the people who designed uh, benefit system which I think in theory probably sounded really good we're just going to give people one benefit it's going to be really smooth we're going to bring down the benefit as people get more money and they're paid but actually in reality if um, there had been more conversation and more consultation with the people who are receiving it they'd have seen that it really doesn't work and there are so many other examples Cameron I think universal credit is the really obvious one but um, I've been thinking a lot about housing recently and I see people living in in housing that just isn't working for them that isn't appropriate for people's needs and that hasn't recognized that we are individuals we're humans and therefore if you design a straight jacket of a system as soon as people have any additional needs it just doesn't work um, and i'm seeing a lot of people living in houses at the minute that um where the, the housing system I'm talking about council houses here just just isn't working because the system wasn't designed with the realities of life in mind so one thing that I'm involved to try and close that gap between policymakers and people who experience poverty um, is Gateshead Poverty Trade Commission which is uh, currently a group of people from across Gateshead who experience poverty I and mean, who found themselves in poverty for a whole range of different issues um, and reasons and we're working towards thinking about um, the structural reasons that people might have in common that we've identified and we're going to tell some of those truths at a launch event in the new year and from there we'll invite an equal number of civic and business leaders from across Gateshead to work with us and to think about how together we might share expertise, build relationships and recognise that only when we involve the experts by experience, the people who have lived experience of poverty in decision making, will we be able to make policies and systems that actually work um, and so I don't see how anyone at any end of the political spectrum could disagree with that because 
it would result in systems that work. They would be more efficient. They would be better use of resources and they would be kinder. They would recognise people's humanity, meet people where they're at, rather than yeah, creating this straitjacket. I think it's really important for, for people to hear uh, those stories, uh, especially during this general election. Obviously, Brexit is going to dominate this election, at least to an extent. But, but what are the issues that most affect the people you work with on a day-to-day basis in Gateshead? You've touched on a couple of them, but could you tell us a bit more? A great question. Do you know, I was up in a really rural part of Gateshead uh, last week in a little village there. It was a, um, it was a mining village and it's had like economically really hard times. Um, really high levels of deprivation and I was speaking about Brexit with um, some older ladies up there and um, loads of them had said that they'd voted all their life but had decided not to vote in this election and they pinpointed Brexit as the reason for that because they felt like um, whatever their uh, opinions were, however they'd voted, that um, democracy had been undermined and their response to that was just to say do you know what I'm not going to partake in this anymore I'm stepping away this isn't a system which I feel like I have any power in and um that in itself I, I made me feel an awful lot of things which um and I didn't respond very well I just shouted them all you could at least spoil your ballots <laughs> think <laughs> of our grandmothers who fought for our votes but actually um I understand and I also understand because the real frustration is that it's not Brexit that is the issue that people really care about um, and yet it feels like all our democratic energy is pushing towards it. The issues that I hear, particularly in the Poverty Truth Commission, people um, pressing into are things that everyone cares about, that when I look at the campaigns of um, all the major parties um, so far that they know that people want to hear. So it's stuff like the NHS. We talk loads about GPs, about referral times. We also talk a lot about mental health services, particularly for children. Um, we talk about education. We talk about housing and homelessness. Um, issues that affect all of us and that I think um, we probably all care about. And they're all the, maybe some of those major things that will affect how we vote. But the thing that I recognise with some of the people who I um, work with is that they, um, those issues are just more pertinent if you are on the margins because um, you probably need a little bit more support when life is more chaotic or when you're having a time that where you have to rely more um, on, for example, the NHS. Like we know that the um, life expectancy between the rich and the poorest is massive and healthy life expectancy is even more. It's something like 19 years was the last figure I saw um, is the gap in healthy life expectancy between the rich and the poorest. So of course the poorest people in our communities are going to be the people who are most reliant on the NHS. I'm not sure reliance is a very healthy word to use actually. The people who need it the most and therefore potentially care about it the most who um, are going to be thinking about that coming up to the election. I think also about education and education is something that I so believe is a really powerful force for social mobility. And so, of course, we should care about that if we care about people mm. who who need it, for whom it is yeah, a life, a life force and a real 
the hope that maybe things will be different. Yeah, does that answer your question? It certainly does. Um, it's great to hear about the, the work you're doing with the, the Poverty Truth Commission and, and listening to those experts by experience is the phrase that you use. How could kind of Christians and kind of other voters during this general election actively listen to and raise up those often marginalised voices and those experts by experience that you come across in your work? Mm, good question. Firstly, I would say that I think it's hypocritical of me to claim at all to speak for um, anyone who's marginalised. I don't. This is just my ramblings from some of my experiences. So I'd say, don't listen to me, don't listen to other middle class people like me, but and perhaps the sad news is, is that this can't happen before the 12th of December. But particularly as Christians, surely we should be recognising that our relationship, we should have relationships with people on the margins, that we should have relationships with people who are oppressed, because A, relationships are transformative, B, because that's what Jesus modelled, and C, because I think something about church recognises that it has to incorporate everyone in our communities and perhaps particularly lean into those people who are marginalised. And I speak from experience here that when we build relationships with people who perhaps society might tell us that we shouldn't build relationships with people who are um, marginalised or experience oppression, whether that be of um, poverty or any other kind, that um, our, like, our hearts will be changed and that we will start to recognise that none of this is personal to us, that our vote is never just about what we want, but it, it always affects our neighbour. I've been thinking recently about what good news means. I think we recognise the good news of the gospel is for everyone. It's not just for, for me, although it, I feel it for me very profoundly. It's the good news is the good news for everyone. And so what would good news look like in this general election? Um, would it look like something that would just be good news for the wealthiest? Or would it be um, something that uplifts and allows flourishing of life for even the poorest in our society? So I would really urge everyone to think about when they put their cross in a box on the 12th of December, that they might not just be thinking about um, what is good news for them as an individual but what is good news for us as a society which wants to um which if it reflects the kingdom of god would allow flourishing for all i think that is a wonderful place to end our interview lucy thank you so much for joining us you've given us a lot to think about thanks for having me cameron i think the great thing about lucy is that you can you can really hear her passion for this kind of thing and I hope that that passion uh, has been infectious and that you're inspired to intentionally listen to those marginalised voices. The northern bias of your new host is going to come out now as we're remaining in the northeast uh, for our final interview. I made the arduous trip back to Newcastle to talk to my mum who also happens to be a Methodist minister. She's a district community engagement enabler uh, in the Newcastle district and she also just loves campaigning. When she sees something wrong with the world, she loves to launch a campaign to try and alleviate it. So I talked to her a bit about how she is trying to alleviate some of the vitriolic discourse that we're seeing in politics at the moment. Tracy, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. 
I know it must be intimidating to be interviewed by someone you admire <laughs> so much, but, but do try to relax. Uh, Tracy, during general elections, we often see an exacerbation of some of the troubling trends uh, we often see in politics generally. Um, what is it that's particularly worried you recently? I've been really concerned about um, the increase in the number of politicians who have um, told us how much abuse, um, how many death threats and things that they've had on their lives, in their um, email inboxes, in their constituency offices. And then in the run-up to the election or the announcement of the election, the number of MPs, particularly women, saying that they were standing down because of this kind of abuse. Um, it really disturbed me. What kind of world are we living in that even if we disagree with somebody, that people feel it's okay to threaten somebody's life or insult them on a daily basis? It's not the kind of world I want to live in. Now, obviously, there are big changes which have to be made with regards to political discourse generally. Um, and it can often be easy to feel a bit helpless. Um, but we can often forget that even small acts of resistance can actually be quite powerful. So what have you been doing to offer a counterbalance to the situation you've just been describing? So I was quite struck with that whole um, starfish story scenario of the little boy on the beach with thousands of washed up starfish and uh, an old man and he's throwing them into the sea one by one and an older man comes along and asks him why he's even bothering because he can't save them all and the little boy just picks up another one throws it in the sea and says yes but I can save this one and that's been my kind of thing that's kept me going with some of these little campaigns I've done from time to time I know I cannot change the world I know I cannot change um, everything but I could potentially um, through a small act of kindness and love actually make a difference to one politician um, on the on one day and I thought well if they've had um, thousands of inbox and emails and tweets that have been negative that have been discouraging that have criticized them what would it feel like to receive nice ones encouraging ones even if I disagree with them politically what would it feel like to receive something else something contrary at the beginning of a day that a positive comment or encouragement could change the rest of your day so um, what I've done is um, I've started by uh, sending tweets and emails to various MPs, particularly those who've told us publicly the amount of abuse they've been getting and sending them um, just a short message of encouragement and to keep going, that they're amazing, with to thank them for their service um, to this country. Um, and I've asked my Facebook and Twitter friends to do the same. And what kind of responses have you been getting from the MPs or candidates, as we now call them, uh, that you've been seeking to bless? So some of them haven't got back to me at all, and that's okay. It wasn't about what I receive, it's about what they receive. Um, but some of them have got back almost immediately um, and have said, thank you so much. And I just thought, I suspect on that morning, they've been raking through their messages and another negative, a negative, another negative. They've come across a positive and wanted to say thank you because it makes such a difference. And that's I mean, it's bless me, but the whole point was for me to bless them. Uh, what role has your faith played in, in prompting you to do this small act of resistance? So the kingdom of God is countercultural. It's an upside down uh, kingdom. And it feels like we have, 
encouraged maybe through some of the political decisions we've made in recent years particularly that there's a discourse around that it's it's okay to bring people down constantly, that we can make them feel worse, to make ourselves feel better, we can disagree um, angrily, we can disagree in ways that are threatening. Um, that was not what the kingdom of God was ever about. Jesus was always countercultural. Jesus always loved those that others um, marginalised or um, hated. Um, he encourage the tax collectors and others and so for me he's the model for me of doing things that are upside down that they're things that go opposite to what other people think is okay and normal I don't want this abuse and death threats for people who are serving their country to be the normal the new normal in this world um, I want to bring back something of the kingdom that we pray for when we say thy kingdom come Chris Hume, thank you very much for joining us. That's really encouraging to be reminded that actually these people standing for office are just people. And keep an eye out for more that JPIT might be doing on this topic. So we come to our monthly musing now. This is our regular segment where Rosella and I reflect theologically on one of the issues that's come up in our interview, or in this month's case, interviews. And one of the things we thought came out of the interviews this month was the idea of truth, uh, kind of with regards to the lobbying acts, whether charities are still allowed to speak truth to power, from talking to Irene and Lucy, this idea of truth of experience and listening to people's experience. So when we think to the Bible about truth, there are kind of two passages that obviously spring out to us, certainly. That's John 8.32, where Jesus says, the truth will set you free. And John 14.6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. So me and Rosella have both thought separately about what this kind of idea of truth means to us and how we can relate it to this general election period. Rosella, would you like to tell our listeners what you've been thinking about? Yes, I've been reflecting on how truth is understood in our society. And I think personally, I'm quite a black and white right wrong sort of person but I think that the election time does really challenge us to consider that there are many shades of grey. Um, our society I think is quite sceptical about truth and I think that stems from the like the postmodernist philosophy and people like Nietzsche and Freud who argue that truth is not absolute, that it's subjective to our experiences and therefore that truth is a matter of power and that those with power determine what we understand truth to be. Um, so I've been applying some of those thoughts to John 8, where the Pharisees try to trap Jesus with the woman caught in adultery, and Jesus here is kind of caught between two equal truths, that the woman has done wrong and that under law deserves the punishment, but also he has the empathy and he recognises that this woman is a voiceless and powerless and wants to be um, able to help her in this situation and offer her grace. So Jesus, what I think is really amazing is the way that he takes time to stop and think like he's God and he still takes the time to think these things through, which is something I know a lot of us could probably say we don't always do when it comes to politics. And yeah, he has that empathy. He's willing to listen to her experience. Yeah, I suppose in listening to her experience there in Jesus's life and ministry, he's validating it. But 
I suppose we don't only see that in Jesus' ministry, we see it in who Jesus is to start with. Um, Jesus not only listened to and understood experience and then took a course of action based on it, he lived our experience with us. And it was through that living our experience with us that salvation is possible and through the incarnation. You know, in Hebrews 4.15, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. So I think what we see there is that lived experience as opposed to abstract theory is not only useful, but actually vital for God's saving work. And therefore, if it's fundamental for God, then surely it should be fundamental for our policymakers, that validating experience, listening to those people who are marginalised. And so so I'm kind of gleaning from what you're saying is that this general election and kind of politics generally is never just about competing abstract ideologies. It's about the effect that policies have on real people. Absolutely. And the other thing that I've really been thinking about was, I guess, back to the idea of where Jesus saying the truth will set you free. And actually looking at this postmodernist view that says, you know, truth is only about power and it's all about power games and manipulation and whoever holds power gets to determine truth. And actually we see in that case of John 8 that that's not the situation. Jesus could have easily accepted the power of the Pharisees and the truth that they presented. That was a perfectly legitimate way to respond. But Jesus doesn't do that because he he recognises a higher truth. He recognises the truth that he embodies and the values that he holds and the way he responds to people. So I think that's a way in which Christians can really offer something distinct during this election period. It's not saying this is just a battle of competing ideologies and just trying to say my truth will win. It's actually recognising truth is found in the person of Jesus and if we want to offer true truth that that is that is where we will find it and that's what we have to offer as Christians. So what about you, Cameron? What have you been thinking in relation to truth and the election? Yeah, so when I thought about those two passages we mentioned at the start, kind of truth setting you free and Jesus being the truth, what kind of speaks to me from those passages is that truth is liberating and that truth is embodied. And I think disinformation and fake news is likely to be prevalent at this election, perhaps more so than ever before. And I've been reflecting a bit about how we as Christians might be called to respond to that in light of truth being liberating and embodied. So I think that proclaiming factually correct news isn't actually the same as embodying good news. So we of course counteract the fake news and disinformation we see by verifying the information we come across, by not propagating lies and helping others to do so. But I think the best way to counter fake news is by embodying practices by advocating for policies that actually set people free. So when Jesus said that the truth will set you free, I don't think he meant that if something is factually true, then it is automatically liberating. But I do think it shows us that whenever liberation is happening, we can we can declare that as true. And if something's not liberating, then it's not truth in its purest form. So with that in mind, of course, as Christians, we should be seeking facts, not lies, and indeed facts in their full context, so that they're not misleading. But more than that, the truth that we should be seeking is the freedom that Christ offers. 
of course, like freedom from sin, but also freedom from poverty, freedom from racism, freedom from the fear of climate breakdown. I think the good news of Jesus, the liberating embodied truth of Jesus is the real antidote to fake news. So what you're saying is that we need to remember that truth is much more than just facts. It's actually about how we how we find that freedom. Um, I think that's a really helpful lens to look at the policies and the um, truth claims that we're hearing during the election period. I certainly hope so. And I think that's a good way to end our monthly musing. One of the things we want to do here at Faith in Politics is take the time to consider how we can put the ideas discussed into practice. Cameron, have you got some thoughts on that? Yeah, so if you're interested in the Lobbying Act, perhaps if you're involved in the church and you're not sure what you're allowed to say or do as a church or small charity, then the Electoral Commission guidelines are really helpful and we'll post that link on our social media. The Quaker website also has material to help people prepare for the general election if that's something you want to look at. In terms of people's politics hustings, the Joint Public Issues Team website has a really helpful guide that takes you through all the steps of what to do if you want to hold a hustings in your church. I would really recommend going to that if you're interested in doing that in your local area. And hopefully in the next few weeks, the JPIT team will be putting out something to do with blessing candidates. So keep a lookout for that. So that brings us to the end of Faith in Politics for this month. Thank you for sticking with us through a longer than usual episode. We really hope you've been able to take something from that and have plenty to reflect on. Make sure you follow us on our social media accounts and get involved in a conversation on there. That is Twitter is FIP underscore podcast and Instagram is Faith in Politics podcast. Thank you for listening to Faith in Politics, a podcast brought to you by the Joint Public Issues Team of the Baptist Union of Great Britain, the Church of Scotland and the Methodist and United Reformed Churches. We hope you'll join us again next time. To close, we have a final prayer from our colleague Hannah Brown. Loving God, we face a choice. Be with us as we consider the options, weigh the arguments and assess the claims and the candidates but also prompt us to listen to the voices on the margins, to the cry of the earth, and to those who reach a different conclusion to us. God, we pray that you would stimulate our minds, stir our hearts and sanctify our choosing. Help us also to remember your command to love our neighbour, both during and after this election. Amen. <laughs>